This is an Urbanarium City Talk. And this is Should I Stay or Should I Go? A show about Metro Vancouver's housing crisis. I'm Jenny Tan, just a regular person trying to make it in Metro Vancouver. On the podcast, I work out if I should stay living in my camping trailer or go somewhere else where I can afford to live. We acknowledge that Metro Vancouver is the unsurrendered traditional territory of many First Nations, including 10 local nations. The modern housing crisis has its roots in the colonization of Metro Vancouver and continues to displace Indigenous peoples. Take three. On today's show, I talk with SFU professor Andy Yen about who the investors really are and what it means for people trying to live here. Andy Yen, so good to have you in studio today. Right, thank you so much. Well, happy Saturday. Mm-hmm, indeed. <laughs> Andy, tell me the first question we ask everyone. What kind of home do you live in? I live in a nice, nice little home in Hastings Sunrise in Vancouver's east side. And, you know, it's a nice little place that, you know, I've grown to love, grown up and known to love. And I think a lot of it is just a nice little neighborhood where people know their, people know their neighbors and people know the local shops, all, all, all through which I think make it a kind of a nice little uh, east side home. That sounds lovely. I was super excited to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I'm super curious. Whenever we get together at dinner parties and then gripe about how expensive housing is, pretty soon one of my friends will be like, oh, those speculators, right? And particularly those Chinese foreign investors coming and buying our homes, right? And so I want to get a sense from you. To what extent is speculation actually a problem in our housing crisis? And what does it mean for someone in Metro Vancouver trying to live here? Well, I I think that there's a lot to unpack, I think, in that series of statements that you had uh, just spoken to. And I think that a lot of it is really the kind of internal contradictions and conflicts of really what is our residential real estate market. In Vancouver and in Canada, the idea of residential real estate is so close to the issue of housing, the Venn diagram covers each other a lot, but not completely. It's one of those things where I think really having clear ideas are really important. The idea of housing, how that is a human need and a human right, you know, in less than 10 years, I mean, even just within just the most recent five years, I think our ideas and understanding of what is happening in our residential real estate system is a lot better. We found that, you know, things like recently built condominiums in Vancouver, that 50% of them are, are owned by those who don't live in them. Just pause us there for a second. So I'm hearing half of all newly built condos mm-hmm. in our region mm-hmm. are owned by people who, who don't live in them. Who don't live in them. So that's saying they could be speculators from like anywhere and they could be speculators. There's speculators here, speculators from, you know, offshore. They could be, yeah, the, the fact is that they're, non, they're non-owner occupied. This is where geography and details really matter. We back it all the way up and we talk about all residential property in the city of Vancouver. One third of Vancouver residential real estate is non-owner occupied. One third? Right. That's, so that's one third of city of Vancouver. City, city of, Vancouver. of Vancouver. Housing yeah. is on, is pretty much being speculated on. Well, well it's, it's, it's not being occupied by the owner. 
The issue is, you know, what is speculation? Because of course, that speculation occurs on a spectrum. Some of it is something that, say, people are putting out to rent to those keeping them empty and waiting for the kind of prices to escalate and as such ready to kind of uh, ripen and then sell at a future date. So I think I'm hearing a couple of things here. First, for us in this chat, speculation is like not a judgmental term. The other thing I'm hearing is that there is a range of speculation, right? There are people who are buying their seventh house or their 30th house. And then there's someone who's like buying their second house. The idea of housing is so it's, it's it's such a kind of hodgepodge of personal and cultural and experiential meanings through which make it a really difficult subject matter to kind of broach. And I think that and it's, and it's a sensitive one. And I think that it's how important housing is through which I makes it a very complicated type of conversation, mixed into the fact that we have a particular system through which we produce housing in this country, I think through which has itself has changed a lot. I think I want to get in on that, like mm-hmm. this idea that you're bringing that housing is not just about a roof under which people sleep. And it's not actually just about money. There are, of course, two big things, but there's a whole emotional, there's a whole cultural part. I think about my dad, right? First gen Canadian immigrant. He's like, you need to buy a house. You need to buy land to feel like comfortable and safe and secure in life. Like that's his big cultural component. And I think I'm hearing a little bit of that. Help me flesh out that picture a bit. Give us a sense of how much speculation is really touching Metro Vancouver. I think depends on where you are and depends on who you are. And I think that that's really part of the challenge of creating public policy that has an effect that's accountable and transparent. It's the fact that housing is not transactional, it's relational. And I think as such, it's relational to all these other aspects of your personal life, your private life, your public life. And I think through which kind of evokes a whole set of emotions in various individuals because it really reflects, again, the roles of culture, the roles of economics, but the role of society. And I think it's in that type of complication. I think that that's really where you reduce housing and residential real estate to just economics and just a transaction, I think is entirely problematic. I almost feel like I, you're working off of like one framework and I'm trying to push you to talk about a different framework. I am trying mm-hmm. to answer it like on a very basic sense, like mm-hmm. channel my grumpy friends who are like, let's just blame the investors. And I'm trying to get Andy in to talk about like that. And then Andy's like, let's not just reduce housing to numbers and money here. It's, it's the issue that housing is not a reductive conversation. It's, a, it's an expansive one. And I think that as an expansive one, it's incredibly challenging because that concentration within that dinner party discussion is really one about society and what kind of society do we want to build? What kind of supports do we want to put in it for not only ourselves, but future generations? And how much more complicated it grows in the face of climate change and the role of globalization and that discussion about the role of foreign capital. Globally, there's been this massive pool of capital being generated in one part of the planet, in this case, China, and how that kind of has global implications. But then it just happens to be this round. You know, if you look at a conversation in, say, the 1880s, you know, the discussion is probably around the uh, kind of colonial effects of capital from the United Kingdom. So 
I think what I'm hearing here is I'm only thinking about like the investors now that we talk about in the in the newspapers now. But you're stretching it back and saying like, look, like one of the aspects that we can talk about is that foreign speculation didn't just happen in the last ten or fifteen years. It has happened since colonization. And it started with capital flows from the UK. So to talk about capital flows from China and this current moment in this isolated way, it oversimplifies the conversation. Well, it's a story of money and capital from around the planet landing in Vancouver. Of course, I think one begins with the kind of displacement effect it has on our indigenous people and within on our, the indigenous community. The biggest story about a foreign capital in metropolitan Vancouver, the first major kind of uh, example of that was actually the development over in the British properties, that that was money that was funded by the Guinness family. It's not only that kind of global capital flows, but the changes in local and national institutions, things like the banking system, things like technology, all through which have had a kind of uh, compounding effect towards the particular type of housing system and the housing products through which we, we, we have today in metropolitan Vancouver. And I think that that's really the issue when it comes to public policy, um, having the idea that there isn't a silver bullet in terms of dealing with housing and its distribution. It's a whole toolkit that we need. Andy, maybe you allow me to play the role of a skeptic here. In New Zealand, they restrict foreign investment or folks who don't hold New Zealand citizenship buying homes in New Zealand. I hear you loud and clear. That would be a reductionist point of view, but indulge me here. Would that solve a good chunk of our problems? There are many jurisdictions around the planet that have been really trying to get a hold of the role of foreign capital to defining their local residential real estate, their local housing system. Um, it's not only, say, New Zealand. It's Australia. It's Singapore. It's Hong Kong. It's certain portions of the United States. It isn't just a Vancouver issue, but it's one through which uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada is just catching up with the rest of the world. Should we be following other jurisdictions with a policy like this then that severely restricts international investor activity? I think a part of it is just understanding the role of international investor activity before you do something about it. I think that that's still a kind of ongoing, I think, challenge in terms of really the metrics. I think that a lot of this is how do you define uh, foreign capital and how do you actually uh, go in and, and measure it. And I think that it's, it's also understanding that really as a city through which has throughout its history kind of struggled with investment capital, um, not enough in this case, or human capital, again, not enough. You know, the role of speculation is that it is part of our housing system, but then the larger public discourse is, should it be defining our housing system? And how do we provide those who aren't in that definition of, of that housing system? I want to go back to what you said about how we as a region don't have a clear understanding of how international global flows are affecting our region. And I want to just poke on that a little bit. In an ideal world, yes. And don't we have enough information to act now? There's a danger in waiting too long to act. What do you think about that? 
Well, it goes into the issue of the point for which you see a direction in the data through which you have a point of action and then through which you then measure the effects of that action and 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 adjust accordingly. Is it bringing in the effects that you're desiring versus the ones that you're not or the uh, unintended effects? As much as one desires, there is this kind of quantum uncertainty that comes into this um, type of discussion that it may, it may not be one of those areas where you can just kind of just have an incredibly pointed series of policies. It's, it's going to be one that you cover a series of principles. Going back to that issue of banning foreign investment, there have been changes in policy and it's not about just banning foreign investment. A lot of folks don't realize that one of the biggest, I think, policies that deal with defining housing in our region is lending policies. It's ones around banking. It's not ones as visible as interest rates, but it's also the rules through which loans are made uh, by by financial institutions as governed by the federal government. Ones through which didn't require you identification, didn't require you to give sources of income towards how you're going to support the loan, that these were key reforms in terms of transparency and accountability that up until about five, six years ago wasn't there. You just showed up and asked for a loan. If you were able to show up with enough money, the banks would be able to issue the loan. Even though you didn't necessarily show who the final beneficiary was to that loan, you didn't show your identification, you didn't show where your sources of income were. I tried to get a mortgage a little while ago. They totally asked me for identification and they totally asked me how much I was making and asked to like show them an employment agreement. For which were, in certain cases, relatively new reforms. Wow. Can you broaden our, or at least my understanding of global capital flows coming into Vancouver for me? It's the United Kingdom, it's the United States, it's, it's, it's China, it's, it's the fact that that is a phenomenon. Actually, the complication is uh, some of that capital isn't here for investment. It's not here for a better return on its capital. It's here for sanctuary. There are many places on this planet where you may be able to earn a lot of money, but the, well, within living memory, that that experience has been actually quite unstable. And in the concern about that instability, not only about your economic well-being, but about your physical well-being, your family's well-being, that a place like Vancouver, in terms of its political, its social and economic stability, and I would also add climate change stability, that this is a great place to hedge that uncertainty. And that in that hedge of that uncertainty, that role of global capital is not just one of strict return on investment. It's one of sanctuary. Oh, this is interesting because friends come to me and say, let's 10 of us pull together our money and buy a place so that we can invest in this place and like watch our money grow in this house. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that there are folks who aren't looking for that, like that growth. They're actually just looking to store their money somewhere, using this as the sort of this is the hiding place under their pillowcase. Right. And, 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 and this is what a lot of other cities have faced around the world, New York, London, which is shaping what gets built and what doesn't get built. It's safety. safety. That's a diff- much different paradigm towards understanding what's driving a housing market than say one about, okay, well, there's a prospect of me earning um, X many percent into the future. That's the idea that we're not living in a bubble, we're living in a dome. 
and that over time that dome gets thicker and thicker towards uh, stabilizing this this particular type of housing market that seemingly seems to be unattached towards local earning potential. You know, we talk a lot about Chinese investors here in this province. I want to talk about what you said about new investment from the UK, investment from the US, like investment from Russia, in the spirit of not blame but understanding. To what degree have those capital flows influenced our market? I think that it's it's also really understanding that this type of housing market has had as everybody else has had incredibly negative effects towards Chinese Canadians. First generation Chinese Canadians on average earn about 40% less than their white counterparts. And I think that we have this tremendous types of inequalities in terms of earning income. You got to remember that these are immigrants that are still highly trained. 50% uh, of them have post-secondary degrees that they've come to this country and yet at the same time haven't necessarily seen the ability of returns, to have returns on their human capital. And I think that that really touches upon the fact that Chinese Canadians are, like everybody else, so negatively affected by this particular type of housing system. I was part of a court case in the in the defense of the foreign buyers tax in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. They were a series of experts, and I testified on behalf of the government as a as an expert. And my major thrust of my submission was that Chinese Canadians are Canadians. And that this is a this is a tax through which it's for the benefit of all Canadians. Andy, I want to ask you about a very common refrain we hear in the media, which is you know whenever people complain about housing prices, right, a, a developer will come on and say, you know, we just need to build more. This is basic economics, folks. If everyone wants to buy apples and the price of apples goes up, you need to get more apples in from somewhere. So the idea is that just build more and the housing prices will come down. You have said there's no silver bullet solution, but it's one of the solutions to just build more. Housing isn't apples. That's my first uh, comment. <laughs> um, housing isn't apples. We don't have a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry that finances, that builds, that grows apples. It's so I think that let's kind of begin with that type of discussion that <laughs> that any allegory about how housing is an apple or avocado toast or whatever isn't necessarily, I think, adequate. My larger perspective is the fact that it is a question of supply in terms of housing, but then it's also one around demand, the type of demands we want to support and the demands that we perhaps want to discourage, and then really the role of finance. So that it's really, when we talk about housing in the city, housing in the region, it's really the relationships between supply, demand, and finance. So if I try to land this, right, you're saying, well, look, like houses aren't that simple. You don't have to get a mortgage to buy apples. There are houses are in different locations. There are different classes of houses. There are different types of houses. All these factors that apples you know, don't have. And that there are some units that make more money than other units. But then through which the net effect may have some incredibly negative effects towards society, housing children. Family housing is difficult because you're talking about typically one, if not two roommates who don't earn any money and that they just kind of suckle off the uh, the people who do for 18 years. Parasites. And, parasites. And, you know, for which, you know, well, are, but then it goes into that type of complication because it then goes into this entire discussion about um, really the role of climate change. 
we say we build all this housing, but it is one through which we are highly dependent on cars mm -hmm. to do the daily activities as well as to go to work. The details matter. Maybe if I try to land this a little more for the average person, a question I ask myself, and we'll hear Heather Tremaine on this um, <laughs> podcast, she's saying, you know, if you can afford it, it might not be a bad idea to buy. Offer me a little bit of your life advice, Andy, you know, supported by all the data that you've seen. Should I buy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know, Heather, and she's absolutely right, is that, you know, our entire system right now in Canada, much less British Columbia, is entirely geared towards home ownership. This is a big problem, particularly in the face of a changing economic environment. If you think about the idea of a mortgage, that entire system was built at a time when people could have a career with a single employer for 20, 25 years. A, okay, let's abstract that. A stream of income that is stable over 20 to 25 years through which you're able to pay that mortgage off. Hmm. That's entirely a huge kind of mirage for a growing proportion of yes. the population and the yes. ability of having a stable income for 20 to 25 years. You know, we're not talking about paying, you know, your subscription to Netflix. We're talking about, you know, easily a third, if not one half of your income yeah. going into those types of payments. I think that we, we are seeing a certain proportion of our community, of our population, deeply struggling yes. with this type, of, this type of system. It's not only supply, but it's the underlying systems that support that person to enter that type of supply. And again, we're talking about a period in time of growing inequality, growing instability, and sadly, going along generational lines. And I think along those generational lines, you're seeing um, sizable proportions of the population being increasingly excluded out of the housing system. And yet, there are others who are able to arguably thrive in this housing system. Now, the question is, who should have a priority? How should you prioritize those types of demands? I mean, should you be focused on those who can't get into their first homes or, you know, whether it be a stability in rental or stability in ownership, or should you allow the system to define that, well, we'll allow those who are already in the system purchase their second, third, or fourth homes? I reflect deeply on how in this time and age, this mortgage requires two, not just one income earner to have a steady source of income for 25 years, it requires two income earners which doubles the uncertainty. Or and a mortgage helper. And a mortgage helper. That is a good point. I think there will be some of people, and uh, Andy, who will be listening in on this podcast who wants to see what Andy Yan sees in the crystal ball, <laughs> which is, should they buy? I'm always careful because I have this unique ability to indeed predict the past. As much as people really want these types of kind of views in the future, I, I'm always careful in terms of prescribing personal financial advice. <laughs> Simply because I don't. It's not my field. But but, but I think it, 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 do, it does give you that type of context through which, and it, it's a, again, it's a highly personal decision. Like it's a highly personal decision, again, not based upon your current financial status, but then also your views on your current workplace, your views upon where you are in terms of your your personal life. Are you planning to have children? Are you planning to really expand your family? And what are the kind of lifestyle changes, life choices, 
life cycle changes that we're talking about, the expected and unexpected ones that really have a way of really shaping whether you should stay or go, much less buy. (laughs) (laughs) If Andy Yen were emperor of the world, what would Andy Yen do to solve Metro Vancouver's housing problem? I'm always um, careful because I think that it's not only the choices or a, a one single individual. And I think this is what makes housing and 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 actually uh, city building in general I'm, so I'm hard. I'm giving you the ability to wave your magic wand, Andy. I guess the fact is my, my belief is it's not magic. What's hard about this is it's not a single individual. It's systemic. It's the fact that all housing is actually systemic, that it is the outcome of a series of of actors, sometimes acting together, sometimes acting apart independently, through which kind of produce the actual environment that we're dealing with. That it isn't just, say, one person who has a magic wand who can be ruler of the world. Is It's really the fact that you have all these different systems I mean, what's what makes my business so hard? And I'm going to press you on this, Andy, because it's well and fine for you to write articles and yeah. like research papers. That's, and, and that's incredibly important. And at the end of the day, someone has to put a pause into practice. And you know more than they do, probably. So help them out a little bit here. Well, you know, a- let's see Minister David Eby is listening in on this. What would you say? <laughs> my work is telling people, telling people things that they may or may not want to hear. You enter these things with humility, knowing that the housing issue... And, and city building itself isn't a single individual. It's a team sport. Every time that they've been a individual, they've had some incredibly negative negative events. Expand this question for me, well, Andy, well, to give well, us like a, to give us an action step here. Well, the action step is really the idea that you're looking at policies that are again along the realms of supply, demand, and finance. That we're looking at whom whom we're trying to house, what are we trying to house them in, and where are we going to put that housing. That it's a series of policies, I think, which differs from city to city. We take a look at, say, what's happened in the city of Vancouver. Well, those policies are probably going to be different in the city of Burnaby or the city of Surrey. But then at the same time, they also are all collectively affected by, say, a single transportation system. And I think all which then require all three of them to cooperate in terms of transportation, in terms of public transit. And I think that that's what makes this business so unbelievably difficult. I mean, for me, to kind of prescribe a single type of solution would actually be a lie. It would actually be a great lie to say that it, w- it would take just one solution. That I'm will not solve saying them all. the silver bullet. I'm saying yeah. give me one of the many. And, and I think within the, within the one of the many, it's actually considered the question. The nature of my business is to deal with questions. And I think in coming with those answers, it's the fact that those answers have to become that have to be produced together. Andy, what can an average person do? Vote. If you look at the types of civic voter patterns that occur within, say, the city of Vancouver, you know, you're lucky to get 30% of the population voting. And they're the ones who qualify to vote. And I think that being informed about the debates, about the idea that urban issues are complex, but yet ones through which um, ought to inform uh, who you vote for in terms of leadership to actually look for civic leadership, not to follow that civic leadership that doesn't follow dogma, but is informed by data, that I think that that is what the average person can do, is to vote. Would you stay in Metro Vancouver, Andy, or would you go? I think in that question, it assumes you have a place to go. And I think that that is 
a question, uh, again, a highly personal one, because for some, you know, that they have the privileges of the ability to choose many other places, but there are also those in our society that have no other place to go. It's really a question is, uh, you know, are you willing to, uh, what, what points are you willing to just kind of just tough it out? And, and can you tough it out? With the exception of the indigenous population in Canada, it's a fact that all of us at some point in our personal histories included somebody who said, I'm out of here. I'm going to make a life in, in Canada. Some have been able to benefit from those choices. Um, some of them may, may not have had uh, many choices to make. I mean, you know, you think about the role of uh, wartime refugees, you know, whether it's in the Second World War or to Syria. Yeah. I think the challenge of making sure that our city and our region um, have the ability for not only the present, but future uh, generations to call this place home. And Ian, thank you so much. You're welcome. And now let's break down those ideas with architect Bruce Hayden. So what do we think? I always appreciate Andy because he really has done the deep dive into the whole situation. Um, the very specific things that, 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 were, that I found really refreshing in that conversation. First of all, we always have to remind yourself that real estate and housing are not the same thing. And often in this region is we get confused with those two things. What do you mean that by that? So real estate is how we provide housing. What I heard Andy say that is something I really support is, and it's been in some ways a theme of this podcast, is the idea that housing has emotional component, it has cultural component, and it has a financial component. And we often want to focus on just the financial component, which is the real estate component. But housing is part of it is about where you live, it's about the values that you carry, and it's about where your community is. I think with Andy, it was interesting because I wanted to talk at this one very specific level. I just, I got him on the show because I wanted him to talk about investors. And at first I admit, like as an interviewer, I was like, oh, can you talk about the thing I want you to talk about? But then when I chilled and relaxed, I was like, okay, this is important here. Because this tension between where I wanted to go with this very specific lens and where Andy wanted to broaden it out, I think is what you're saying, a fundamental tension in how we talk about housing in this province. I agree with that. And, and the other thing I think part of my interpretation, my, the reason for Andy's caution a little bit, is that he doesn't want to support the kind of pile on on speculators, right? Um, and, and specifically, I think we have to address one of the things Andy said that was, that in my mind, was really valuable is that in the conversation, sometimes what we want to do is blame especially the Chinese speculator. And I think we have to name that. And he was really clear in, in a way that I liked. What he said was ordinary Chinese Canadians are as victimized by housing speculation as anybody else. And I think that that's actually a valuable and useful lens and a reminder for all of us that we have to be careful about how we talk about this conversation in some ways. The other thing I thought that was neat too was he just emphasized the fact that on one level, even just buying a house in this market can be considered an act of speculation. So we have to think about it from that perspective. He said ordinary Chinese Canadians. I have a lot of friends who come and they say to me, like, oh, I'm not blaming regular Chinese people. It's just the rich Chinese people. Look, that's clearly racist. He talked about global capital flows from everywhere else. But there's also this sense it's okay to pile on the rich people. I think what Andy is saying is that, look, yeah, you're wealthy and you're rich and you're making choices you know, that at the end of the day, are, are, is a rational choice 
in our system. So I think as humans, we want to blame people. We like finding people to blame because that's easy to pinpoint. But he's saying, look, it's a system. You can't blame just, it's hard to blame individual people. It's not hard to, it's easy, easy to blame. To. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to blame individual yeah, yeah, yeah. people and it's easy to blame groups. And what I think is, is that we have to be resistant to that, which I think is a very fair challenge. The other thing that I heard that was really an interesting and useful lens on it is a reminder that one of the reasons that our region is attractive is not just because we offer kind of a high rate of return. So it's not just the speculator as wanting to get an extra um, XX percent on their investment. It's about the fact that there were, were seen globally as a safe place. And that's a reminder as well is that is that that people want to be here in part because we're seen as a stable democracy in a period of instability. And that's an important value that we shouldn't forget. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of the housing market, but um, it is this just aspect of safety and not just safety for their money, but safety for their families, safety for their communities. And those sorts of things are, are again, an important reminder about the human dimensions of this. I think there's a bit of it, like like wealthy people are people too, you know? I want to talk about what was missed. And I wish that guy would just tell us what to do. And I get it, like it's a system, blah. I get it. I, I hear you, Andy. And at the same time, Andy knows just as well as all of us do that we have to make decisions at the end of the day. With that big brain of his and all that data and all the research he had done, if you just like tell us. I would have liked that too. I do think that... that uh, <laughs> That we missed out on that and we can't, you know. We, we, we like we, you, Andy. Yeah, we love you, Andy. And I think that we enjoy the fact that I think he is one of those people who's genuinely done the homework. And the challenge, of course, is doing the homework is that you immediately recognize that any simple solutions won't work. It would have been great if he'd given us at least one really strong and simple, like if he said, let's do this. And even like, let's do this. It's not the full solution. It won't do everything that people wanted to do, but it's a good step. I would have taken that. Yes, I would have appreciated that too. I'm always reminded that one of the problems we have globally is this problem of that a small number of people have an enormous amount of money, and which is a global challenge that I think is, is really tied in with this. I always like that Andy has a sense of history around this, like including yeah. interesting the global history, like the fact yes. that Vancouver has always been a place speculated. Rich. We used to worry about the British money, not the, not the Chinese money, Rich. which I think is always a great thing. And it's useful that, that, that to some extent to think about the fact that that it is part of actually our cultural history in this place, right? But I do think there's a difference now. And the difference is that that we've got this pool of very, very fluid global capital that is in a very narrow range of hands. And I would say it is something that I worry about because it means that this issue of the housing market being completely detached from local incomes, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and that that's actually a relatively new thing in this region. It took work to stay with Andy with his train of thought because I was hoping for that direct answer to my questions, but it was useful to stay with that train and then to see him flesh it out, to see that the, the narrow questions didn't do justice to the complexity of the issue. And that was Andy Yen, professor and director of the Simon Fraser University City Program. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to hit subscribe so you know when we drop our next episode. And tell us what you think. Email us at citytalk at urbanarium.org. That's citytalk at urbanarium.org. I read every email. 
And thanks so much to our editorial advisor, our Binarian board member and processing buddy, Bruce Hayden. Our production team is self-hired. Special thanks to Suman Candola. The music was composed by Yute Lee. Will Jackson designed our podcast art. I'm Jenny Tan, and you're listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Ciao!